Hi! Welcome! This episode is gonna be a little different from the other ones I've been uploading. It's not quite as produced. I have a lot less detailed of notes. Not gonna be putting any like music or clips from external sources into this one. Hopefully this saves some time because I have had a lot of trouble keeping the podcast updated weekly like I want to because the other episodes were just taking so long to make and I got a 9 to 5 so it can be a little hard to make these episodes while I've got a full-time work schedule and I will probably be making more episodes like this just to get get the episodes uploaded you know once a week like I planned on originally. But while today's episode is gonna be a little bit more casual in format, it is definitely not casual in content. As I'm sure you can see from the title, we are gonna be talking about the tumultuous relationship between Amber Heard and Johnny Depp. Trigger warning, of course, I'm sure you already are aware of the subject matter, and if you're not, I'm kind of jealous because I don't know how you managed to avoid it. But I assume most people already know about this situation. The trial that's been at the center of this conversation has dominated coverage on the news and on social media for most of this year. It involves the actors Johnny Depp and Amber Heard, who have both accused the other of domestic abuse while they were married. So warning for all of that, abuse, assault, sexual assault, yada yada. You can turn off this episode if you want, no hard feelings whatsoever, but um, I really don't know how you're gonna get around the rest of the internet. Even though the trial is over, I still can't get away from this topic. Every day I open Twitter, which was probably already a mistake, and then I see something on the trending tab related to Amber Heard or Johnny Depp. Now, when the trial first started, I was intentionally trying to avoid it. I knew it was going to be long, and a lot of people were reported to be testifying, so I just wanted to wait until the dust had settled to form my opinion. But my plans kind of got thwarted by all the people treating this case like they were live-tweeting the fucking Super Bowl or something. Before I actually started paying closer attention to the trial, all the information I got about it was coming from Twitter, which was again a big mistake. I changed my mind many times throughout the last three months, and I've since developed a pretty firm opinion on the trial, which I'll get into. But assessing the trial is different from assessing the actual relationship, contrary to popular belief. From social media, you might get the impression that this was a criminal trial to convict someone of domestic abuse, but you would be mistaken. It was actually a civil case for defamation. Defamation regarding someone's sort of claims of abuse. So it's kind of a related but distinct issue from what we're supposed to be making of this couple's time together overall. I kind of wish I could avoid the whole discussion, but it will just not go away. No matter who I see on social media receiving support, I always see a lot of problematic talking points. So like, the support from Amber Heard's side is a little bit more vague. If a Heard supporter is defending a specific allegation, I usually find I have to do a lot more digging to find the evidence they're referring to just to contextualize the arguments, or I just see them making points about domestic violence trends as a whole, like pointing out how many victims aren't believed in a way to defend Amber without actually providing evidence to counteract Johnny Depp's claims. Johnny Depp supporters, on the other hand, are usually much more reliable in terms of sharing specific pieces of evidence for their side, and while that may on the surface make his side look more credible, I can't say I always agree with the way his supporters are actually interpreting the evidence. Things get portrayed as unquestionable proof of certain things that are just not really compelling from like a logical standpoint, but also a moral one. Sometimes it seems like people aren't just passionately defending Johnny, 
but actually finding joy in picking everything Amber Heard does apart? So it's been really hard to parse information around this situation because every source feels biased or unreliable. So I decided to spend my time researching the allegations of these two sides and I organized them into a full timeline. So this is what we're going to do for this episode. This is going to be the first part of a two-parter on the relationship of Johnny Depp and Amber Heard. First, I'm going to talk about my feelings about the trial and the discourse on social media. Then we'll get into the timeline, which includes everything that I could find that I thought was relevant to this story. So not just the allegations from the trial, but also other incidents and allegations that might help paint the picture of Johnny and Amber's overall patterns of behavior. I can't claim to have collected all the data. There's a lot, which is why this is a two-parter. And we're going to start the timelines at the two parties' childhoods and then end right before they become a couple. Next week, we'll get into all the major events from the time their relationship started until today. And I'll also discuss whatever evidence I could find to prove or disprove any allegation I'm discussing. And of course, I'll give my opinion for if I think the allegations are likely true. I'm not going to claim to be an objective source. Nobody can. Especially in a situation that involves so many serious subjects that a lot of people can relate to in some personal way. Your experiences are gonna affect the way you interpret this case, and that's fine. We just need to be aware of that and not get too arrogant with our perspectives. But I will emphasize that I really don't have a strong allegiance to either side. I can't say I'm personally a fan of either of these actors. I've liked some of the movies that they were in, but as, like, people... Yeah. They don't, they're not my fave. I'll just say that. They're not my fave. It really, no matter whose side the public comes down on, vulnerable people are going to get hurt by this. If the public is in Johnny Depp's favor, which seems to be the case, those who want to accuse women of lying about domestic abuse will paint him as a martyr for their cause, and that's kind of already happening, which is concerning. But I have also been seeing increased support for Amber recently. Not really enough to counteract the Johnny Depp supporters, but it is growing. And while there are a lot of men who support Johnny just to call a woman a liar, there are also men that genuinely identify with Johnny as a man who's publicly labeled himself a victim of domestic abuse. There's a lot of stigma against male victims of abuse, so I really wouldn't want to take that representation away from anybody. Even if Johnny Depp is a kind of flawed victim, he's still like the most famous man to ever claim that kind of story. I have to say though, I do get kind of annoyed when I see hashtag men too trending on the internet. It's like the all lives matter take on me too which is already problematic, but the biggest issue I have with it is the fact that the Me Too movement never excluded men. Some of the biggest stories to come out during the Me Too era were guys. Brendan Fraser, Terry Crews, uh, the victims of Kevin Spacey and Brian Singer. Men can absolutely be victims too. And the big reason men are often not believed or have their victimhood stigmatized is because of patriarchal norms. And that's a part of the same cultural structure that enables abuse against women. So I just don't think that we need a separate movement for male victims. Men are victims of the patriarchy too. Let's fight it together instead of trying to create this false dichotomy of me too being for women and men too needing to exist to counteract that. Anyway, my overall thoughts on the trial I've already talked a little bit about on my blog at medusany.com. I wrote a post called The Women We Won't Protect. Again, my thoughts on the trial are not attempting to represent my thoughts about the entire relationship of Johnny Depp and Amber Heard. The post that I wrote was about two things I found frustrating about the trial. One, I think a lot of people have used the case as an excuse to say some pretty awful things. 
misogynistic things and also things that are harmful to all victims of abuse. This is something that I think happens a lot and it's what I would consider to be like actual cancel culture, meaning like instead of the type of cancel culture that a lot of people think exists where someone does a bad thing and then people hold them accountable for that thing, which I find often doesn't have the type of detrimental consequences that some people, usually male comedians, pretend that it does. What I'm talking about is when somebody does something bad and then we all use it as an excuse to be cruel. Like, you know how we all think that it was awful the way that Britney Spears was treated by the media and the public in the 2000s? And we've all sworn to never treat another person the same way again? I think the public still does want to treat people that way because it's like fun. It's fun to have a national punching bag that we all agree it's okay to bully. But we've learned from our culture's sins of the past that if we want to be bullies, we just have to pick a worthy target and then anything we say about that person is therefore okay. Ironically, I see this in the Britney Spears fandom a lot. So for instance, Jamie Lynn Spears, uh, sucks. I wrote like two blog posts just about that earlier this year. But sometimes people will use the fact that she sucks as an excuse to call her like ugly, which is just straight up mean and unnecessary. Her appearance has nothing to do with her betrayal of her sister. And she's also not a conventionally unattractive person. Like if someone is tweeting that Jamie Lynn Spears looks like shit, and there's some implications for who the people writing those tweets also think look like shit, but won't say anything about it until the other people are also proved to be problematic themselves. And then there are people too calling Jamie Lynn Juno Lynn, which is a reference to her teen pregnancy. And while that is a funny pun, in the year 2022, do we really want to be making fun of a woman for getting pregnant as a teenager? Does that seem like the woke thing to do? And the fact that Jimmy Lynn was an asshole to her sister did actually lead a lot of people in the Britney fandom to start accusing her of lying about domestic abuse she alleges to have faced. And that's just really not cool. Assholes can be abused too. Both kinds of assholes. And I don't think it's okay to be unnecessarily cruel to someone just because they did a specific thing that was wrong. You don't have to be like nice to them. You can definitely be a dick, but like make fun of their clothes or something. Like that's a choice that they made. Don't just call them ugly. That's mean to the ugly community. Like you need to consider what the things you're saying about a person implies about your worldview and why you want to say it. Every day I learn a new horrifying detail about Ezra Miller, so I definitely think they're a bad person, but I would never intentionally misgender them for it. Transphobia is wrong all the time, even when it's against someone you don't like. Like, social media was so fucking nasty during this trial. But since those at the center of it were portrayed as awful people, that gave a lot of other people license to be awful themselves, while pretending their awfulness is actually the morally righteous thing to do. And that's what I think cancel culture actually is, is just taking opportunities to be mean, but mean in a way that still lets you pretend to be woke. The other thing that I was frustrated with is the fact that this was a defamation trial. It was supposed to decide if Amber Heard defamed Johnny Depp with her Washington Post op-ed from 2018 called I spoke up against sexual violence and faced our culture's wrath. That has to change. The supposedly defamatory statements from the article were that title along with these two sentences. First, quote, Two years ago, I became a public figure representing domestic abuse, and I felt the full force of our culture's wrath for women who speak out, unquote. And then, quote, I had the rare vantage point of seeing in real time how institutions protect men accused of abuse, unquote. 
The rest of the article wasn't primarily about Amber's experience, it was more focused on overall issues of domestic violence and the importance of the Me Too movement. Amber wrote it in collaboration with the ACLU, who some people have alleged actually wrote the article, or at least wrote part of it. And even though Amber didn't name Johnny as her abuser in the piece, she'd filed a restraining order against him in the past, so people knew who she was referring to. Which led to Johnny suing Amber for defamation, with the claim that the article damaged his career, and also that Amber was the abusive one in their relationship. Now, if you haven't kept up, the jury did decide that these were defamatory statements, and Amber was ordered to pay Johnny Depp, like, $12 million or something? It was at first, like, 15 but then there was some other stuff. I don't know. She owes him at least over, like, $10 million. Now, here's why I have a problem with that verdict from a legal standpoint. First, let's acknowledge that it's typically really hard for anyone to allege defamation in court and win their case, especially if the plaintiff is a public figure. A defamatory claim is basically a false statement that damages someone's reputation. The reason it's harder for celebrities to win defamation cases is that once you get a certain amount of press, rumors about you are gonna circulate. There's gonna be fabricated claims out there in the world featuring your name, and you can't sue every person that's ever said something false about you. Especially when the original source can be almost impossible to locate when you're famous. So public figures like Johnny Depp have to convincingly demonstrate, one, that the false claim was malicious, meaning that someone wasn't just spreading incorrect information in earnest, they knew they were wrong, and they spread the rumor anyway. And two, you have to be able to prove monetary loss. So for instance, I could make up a rumor about Katy Perry stepping on my foot, and Katy could sue me if she wanted to, but she would have to prove that the story I made up affected her business. Like if there was a huge dip in her streaming numbers and there was nothing else that could reasonably be deemed responsible for that loss, I'd basically have to convince a massive amount of people to stop listening to Katy Perry because she's a foot-stepper on her. In terms of Amber's op-ed, first off, she not only doesn't name Johnny Depp, she doesn't actually say that she's a victim of domestic abuse or that her former partner is an abuser. Let's look at the statements again. The first one is, I spoke up against sexual violence and faced our culture's wrath. That is true. She did speak up against it when her allegations of abuse against Johnny were first publicized with her filing for a restraining order, and she did receive a fair amount of backlash from members of the public, just like anyone who alleges abuse against a famous person. Even if it's from a minority of the public, coming out against a beloved figure means you're gonna get some death threats. That's just a fact. Then Amber says, Two years ago, I became a public figure representing domestic abuse, and I felt the full force of our culture's wrath for women who speak out. Again, true. She was a public figure representing domestic abuse. People saw her with bruises. Whether or not you believe those were real, the pictures existed, and she did become a figure representing abuse. And we already covered the culture's wrath thing, so let's just move on to the third statement. I had the rare vantage point of seeing in real time how institutions protect men accused of abuse. Again, the wording is important. She doesn't say abusive men. She says men accused of abuse. And considering she did in 2016 accuse Johnny Depp of abuse, this is again a true statement. And she saw how institutions protected him. Many powerful people came to his defense. You can say they were correct to protect him if you believe that Johnny is innocent, but the statement as written is true. I know it seems like I'm splitting hairs, but that's what the law is supposed to do. It's supposed to be technical and down to really specific details, especially in any case that involves someone's freedom of speech, something we as a country claim to care deeply about. Forget about Amber Heard and whatever you think about her. 
For these statements to be deemed defamatory means that even super precise language, void of any specific details or identifiers that just vaguely reference to the potential existence of abuse, can count as defamation. And for a lot of victims, that is terrifying. This ruling will make some people scared to come out with their own stories. If even this Washington Post article that's super specifically written is deemed defamatory. I also just don't think that the Washington Post piece really affected Johnny's career that much. We'll get into it once we start talking about the timeline, but Johnny was already having notable problems in his career for a variety of reasons. And again, the Washington Post article has no real allegations. It doesn't say anything about what Johnny supposedly did. The only reason people knew it was referencing him is because of the allegations Amber made in 2016 with their initial separation. And after that date, Johnny Depp got plenty of movie roles. Running down the list, we have Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them, Yoga Hosers, Donald Trump's The Art of the Deal, The Movie, The Black Giandola, Murder on the Orient Express, Pirates of the Caribbean, Dead Men Tell No Tales, Sherlock Gnomes, Fantastic Beasts, The Crimes of Grindelwald, The Professor, City of Lies, Waiting for the Barbarians, and Minamata. So I just kind of find it really hard to believe that the Washington Post article was the final nail in the coffin of Johnny Depp's career. The allegations it vaguely referenced were already years old, and it didn't really seem to affect his career that severely. And then also, as far as malicious intent goes, it's kind of ironic to me that Johnny Depp supporters will use the bipolar and histrionic diagnosis of Amber Heard to prove that she's a manipulative liar. Because to me, having a personality disorder like those kind of points that her intent wasn't really malicious. It was just a result of her mental illness. Because personality disorders can affect someone's sense of reality. Sometimes sufferers will say things that are untruthful or exaggerative, and they can definitely be really manipulative, but that doesn't mean that they're doing it with intent. Most people with those disorders don't realize they're being manipulative. They aren't consciously attempting to manipulate people or spread misinformation. They're often convinced of what they're saying. Often they're not conceptualizing events through hard facts of what did or didn't happen. Rather, they're conceptualizing them through the emotional emphasis of what they feel like happened. Which can cause them to rewrite situations of the past in their heads with the firm belief that their new conception is the truth. So, like, imagine two people, one with severe borderline or histrionic personality disorder and one without, and both of these people get into a fight with their significant other, and things are said during the fight that are hurtful, but fair. A person who's doing well emotionally and doesn't have any sort of personality disorder or anything of that sort might at first be really defensive about what was said, and they might get really sad about it, but overall they're able to listen to what their partner is saying and take some accountability for their own actions. They can control their own response to not do or say anything extremely inappropriate or harmful to the other person. Someone with borderline, though, is going to have a significantly harder time regulating their emotional response. Internalizing criticism might be especially hard, so instead of approaching the situation rationally, they might let the argument escalate in their head to match whatever emotion they're feeling the strongest. If their feelings were hurt, they might not conceptualize the event as, my partner said something about me that was kind of true, and now I'm just feeling a little bit sensitive. They may instinctively convince themselves that they said something that hurt my feelings, and that means they were mean to me, and that means they were abusive. I'm not saying that this is definitely what happened with Amber Heard, I'm just saying that if you believe she's suffering with borderline or histrionic personality disorder, it doesn't make any sense to me to be okay with how much of the public has treated her. If she's really so delusional that she made up all of these accusations, she needs psychiatric help, not people lip-syncing her testimonies on TikTok or brands joining in to mock her. No one chooses to be mentally ill. 
A lot of this trial, though, became about villainizing Amber in a really overblown way. Again, this is a defamation case. The only thing that should have been discussed were things directly related to the statements in the Washington Post article that supposedly affected Johnny Depp's career. Yet, one of the things that got a lot of discussion in the courtroom and on social media was whether or not Amber donated the amount she pledged to the ACLU, which was just completely irrelevant to the claims at hand. It was meant to paint Amber as a bad person, but here's the thing. Bad people can be victims of domestic abuse, too. Domestic abusers can become victims of domestic abuse. Abuse isn't something you become immune to just by being a shitty person. So how much money Amber did or didn't donate shouldn't matter. This case was just treated as a public sport, highlighting all the times when Amber was allegedly or definitely an asshole to create an excuse for the public to dogpile someone. Which brings me to a topic that I have to temper myself as we get into. For years, I have had a simmering hatred of body language expert content creators, and that simmer developed into a full boil this year. Not all of them are bad, of course. Hashtag not all body language experts. Just like most of them. Clearly, body language is a thing. Most communication humans do is nonverbal, so there is value in studying nonverbal cues as a part of human behavior, and that can be a really fascinating topic. Sometimes a person's body language does reveal things that their words don't. But... Body language expert content is often super misleading in terms of accuracy. It reduces the complexities of human behavior into something you can easily analyze by paying attention to, like, where someone's eyes are looking, or, like, measuring their pulse through things like lie detectors, which is related to the topic of body language. But none of that stuff is super scientific. There are many reasons that someone might be acting in a certain way physically, we can't just isolate anything to a specific feeling unless you're actually in somebody else's head, looking at all the contributing factors to their behavior. There was one tweet I saw in the midst of this trial that I just found fucking horrifying. It reads, quote, I have been told abusers stare at victims in court. The abused can't look at the tormentor. When Johnny Depp testified, Amber Heard was staring at him and has done this throughout. He refuses to look at her, unquote. You can't decide that one of these people is an abuser just because of where they look in a courtroom. This tweet has almost 20,000 likes, though, and I'm so troubled by the idea that all these people seem to believe that abusers and victims act in any particular way, in court, in life, in anything. Everyone has their own methods for how to deal with shit. Spreading pseudo-psychology like this is extremely damaging for victims of abuse, whether Amber is one of them or not. Research shows that the average person can spot a lie with 53% accuracy. You have about the same chances of looking at someone and being able to tell that they're lying as you would if you didn't look at them and you just flipped a coin. So for all the people on Twitter being like, I can just tell that Amber Heard is lying just from the way she talks. No, you can't. You really, really can't. And understanding body language trends isn't going to help you spot deceptive people. Because really deceptive people understand body language too, and they know how to come across as trustworthy. I mentioned it in the first episode, but I don't trust Elijah Wood. He's too charming. He has to be up to something. One thing body language expert content creators will talk about to make their assessment seem more legitimate is getting a baseline, meaning looking at someone's normal behavior to understand how they usually communicate non-verbally. And that's true, you do have to understand someone's baseline to be able to assess any potential deviations from their normal behavior. You can use those comparisons to see when they're uncomfortable or if they're being evasive, but the problem with these content creators is that they're often analyzing the nonverbal behaviors of celebrities or public figures. And so their baseline for understanding a celebrity's behavior 
is going to be based on what other footage of that person they could find, and in a vast majority of footage portraying celebrities, they know they're being filmed and watched. Even if you're used to it, that's not a natural state to be in. You're automatically going to start adapting your behaviors. So how can you say that's a baseline for someone's natural nonverbal communication? We have to think about the circumstances through which someone's behavior is being affected. And this is especially true in a court case. I'm getting so annoyed by people accusing someone in the trial of coming across as performative. Everyone working on that case is performing. The goal is to persuade a judge or jury to take your side, and that's gonna involve some sort of strategy for how to come across as trustworthy or convincing. That's natural. That's normal. That's fine. Think of, for example, Taylor Swift's testimony in the defamation case against her when she said a radio personality grabbed her ass without consent. Taylor Swift is often considered a calculating pop star, meaning she's very good with PR and she knows how to manipulate her image in a good way. During her testimony, she took a very specific approach. She was incredibly insistent. She kept bringing answers back to the claim that the plaintiff grabbed her ass. We don't have the exact transcript, but you can find a lot of articles about her testimony online. And it says things like when she was asked about why the front of her skirt wasn't affected in a photo from the incident if the plaintiff had allegedly lifted her skirt, she responded with, well, my ass is behind me. Then the plaintiff's attorneys brought up that Taylor had been standing closer to the plaintiff's wife than him, and she would say, yeah, but she didn't grab my ass, he did. She continuously reminded the jury of the allegations she made and continuously insisted that it was true. It was an effective strategy, and Taylor did win that case. I would say that Johnny Depp's tactic was somewhat similar to Taylor's. He was very good at bringing answers during his questioning back to facts and accusations that benefited his side. It was actually really frustrating to watch Amber Heard's lawyers struggle to contend with the way Johnny was twisting their questions. They just couldn't think on their feet fast enough to call him out on any manipulative answers or rephrase their questions to get the responses that they wanted. Like, I never thought that I had what it takes to become a lawyer. Some people's brains are just, like, adept at studying certain subjects, and I kind of assumed that my brain was not conducive with the process of earning a law degree. But seeing Amber Heard's lawyers argue her case made me think that, like, maybe it's not that hard. Maybe I'm ready for the bar. Like, Harvard, here I come. Now, there's nothing wrong with Johnny Depp's responses being kind of manipulative. He's trying to win a case. You have to be conscious of how your answers are going to come across to a jury, and Johnny was really good at getting viewers on his side. As a man with decades of experience in the entertainment industry, he's super charming and persuasive, and that was obviously really helpful to his case. Amber Heard, on the other hand, not as skilled from a PR standpoint. She either got some very bad advice on how to carry herself on the stand, I mean, she did fire her PR team midway through the trial, and again, her lawyers sucked, so maybe they did steer her in the wrong direction. Or she just doesn't have good instincts in assessing the optics of her behavior. That doesn't mean that she's guilty. Plenty of people could have similarly failed to win over the public and jury if they were in her position, whether they were being completely honest or not. Some people just act in ways that comes across as suspicious, for whatever reason. And that's actually one of the reasons I picked this topic to be my first episode in which I didn't really use any outside clips for reference. I want to keep this to facts, accusations, and evidence only. Let's leave out all of the body language bullshit. All that being said, let's get into the timeline and look at what we can gather about the pasts of Johnny Depp and Amber Heard. Obviously, because he is older, we have to start with Johnny Depp. Johnny was born on June 9, 1963. About his childhood, he has alleged that his mother was violently abusive toward him, his siblings, and his father. His sister has testified to this as a witness in the recent trial. It's also a very consistent allegation, so I have no doubt that this is true. 
In 2016, at his mother's funeral, he even said that she was the meanest human he had ever met in his life. The abuse was physical, it was emotional, and while she was abusive to everyone in the family, it does seem like she was primarily targeting Johnny, which would obviously be extremely damaging to him psychologically. Johnny has also claimed that his mother had substance abuse issues. He once said that he walked in on his mom ODing shortly after her divorce from his father. And he would go on to blame his childhood trauma for his own substance abuse problems. He apparently started using drugs around 11, and once said that he did every kind of drug there was by age 14. Johnny would later go on to compare Amber to his mother, and on the first day of the trial, he talked about his father's own endurance of abuse, saying, quote, To me as a five-year-old boy, I kept wondering, why does he take it? How does he take it? And why doesn't he leave her? But he didn't. He was able to maintain his calm and his composure. He was able to maintain his relationship with his children. He is a good man." Unquote. Now, I do think that this claim kind of contradicts some other statements. So while Johnny says that he kept wondering why his father didn't leave his mother, and he said that his father maintained a relationship with his children, he also expressed on the stand some resentment when his dad finally did leave, and when his dad divorced his mother when Johnny was about 15, it does seem like his dad pretty much abandoned the family afterward. They've patched up their relationship in their adulthood, but initially Johnny's dad does seem to have been pretty absent in their lives. Now, it's absolutely fine that Johnny might hold some conflicting emotions regarding how his father handled the abuse. It's totally natural for anyone, especially a kid, which he was at the time that his parents split, to have a lot of mixed feelings around the situation. But I do think the way he lets his dad off the hook for the abuse that he and his siblings suffered is kind of revealing. Whether his dad was a victim himself or not, he had responsibilities toward his children to keep them safe, and not only did he enable much of the abuse of his own children, he essentially abandoned them once he divorced Johnny's mother. For Johnny to dismiss his dad's flaws as a parent could indicate how he feels about the level of responsibility men have in contributing to a household dynamic. His mom takes most, if not all, of the blame for Johnny's childhood trauma, while his dad is commended for being a good man despite overlooking his kid's trauma. His testimony could also be a part of a calculated move to endear the jury to his side, equating Amber to his abusive mom, implying that he's taken the role of his passive father, means that when he asserts that his father was a good man, listeners are going to associate him with that same kind of grace. It adds to the narrative of Johnny as a battered husband. The way he's presented this account of childhood abuse feels very purposeful, which is fine. It's not a commentary on any of the claim's validity, but we should consider the potential motive of everything said in these testimonies. Some Johnny Depp stands have tried to fit his abuse into this narrative of implying that as a victim-slash-witness of abuse, he couldn't possibly be abusive himself. Like, because his mom was so violent and hurtful, he's learned this lesson that means he would never treat anyone else that way. And that's not necessarily true. That definitely is the ideal circumstance that someone who is a victim of abuse will go on to know how harmful abusive tactics can be to other human beings, and they won't want to do that themselves. But there are plenty of people who will continue the cycle of abuse in their own adulthood because that's what they learned from their caregivers. We know that Johnny replicated his mother's substance abuse, so it's not outside the question that he might have also replicated some other abusive behaviors. In fact, Johnny's claim that his mom had begun experiencing abuse when she was 12, so she was already continuing this cycle within their family. In any case, Johnny developed an interest in music and dropped out of school at 16 to make it as a musician. At 20, he moved to LA with his band, but that same year he was convinced to start acting by Nicolas Cage. Nicky introduced Johnny to his agent, who landed him an audition with Wes Craven, who was casting Nightmare on Elm Street. He got the part, along with a few other acting roles, 
And then he went on to star in the show 21 Jump Street, which began in the late 80s. And that's the show that really turned Johnny into a teen heartthrob. I'm not going to mention every role of his career as we go down the timeline because it's not totally relevant to the allegations. But I do want to mention a few entries in his filmography to establish the kind of fan base he would acquire. So films like John Waters' Crybaby, What's Eating Gilbert Crepe, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, Rango. Some of his movies were mainstream successes, but a lot of his work is more known for having cult followings. He became a frequent collaborator of Tim Burton, for example, starring in Ed Wood, Edward Scissorhands, Sleepy Hollow, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. This is an unpopular film opinion that I have, but I actually like Charlie and the Chocolate Factory more than Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory starring Gene Wilder. Some people get really, really mad when I say that, but it is true. And then, of course, he would star as Captain Jack Sparrow in the shit Pirates of the Caribbean films, which everyone pretends to like now. Ever since Johnny won the trial, people keep tweeting like they're excited for Disney to possibly rehire him for the franchise. Like, every film in the series except the first one isn't rotten on the tomato meter. The last movie got a 30%. People mocked the shit out of those movies, and now we're supposed to act like they were good? Like, stop lying to yourselves. They were not good. Nobody liked them. What I want to emphasize about Johnny Depp and his filmography, though, is that his presence in so many beloved films made him a household name, but his decision to take on quirkier roles within films that mean a lot to people of more niche interests endeared him to a very dedicated audience. Sweeney Todd, for example, is the musical choice for teenagers who think knowing all the words to songs about cannibalism makes them edgy. Like the kind of hot topic shopper that uses the term teeny bopper unironically to disparage their fellow classmates. They may be obnoxious, but they are dedicated fans. Tom Cruise and Brad Pitt may be on a similar level of success that Johnny Depp is, but they mostly do films that have mainstream appeal, not as many with a really particular audience, which means they don't have as many hardcore stands as Johnny Depp does. But the same year that Johnny was convinced by Nikki to take on acting is the year that he married Lori Ann Allison, his first wife. She is a makeup artist and a sister of one of his bandmates, but there's not a whole lot known about her. She's not, like, a celebrity herself. They would divorce two years later, and I tried to find anything from her that would indicate her current feelings on Johnny, like if it was an amicable divorce or... If they, like, hate each other now? It at least seems to have been amicable, but I couldn't find any direct quotes about her current stance on Johnny and his potential abuse. The only thing I could find was from TMZ, but it doesn't contain any direct statements. It just says, Lori, who is married to Johnny from 1983 to 1985, tells friends she doesn't believe Amber Heard's claims that Johnny brutalized her multiple times during their short marriage, Lori says Johnny's never got physical with her during the relationship. He never even screamed. She calls him a soft person who is even kind to animals. Lori and Johnny had a dog during their marriage, and he was more loving with the pooch than most parents are to their kids. Lori and Johnny are still friends and spoke as recently as last week when she called to offer her condolences over his mother's death. So that's the claim, but again, it doesn't come directly from Lori. It just comes from, like... I guess Lori's friends or something? I don't know. Something that kind of contradicts the idea, though, that Johnny and Lori are currently friends is a 2020 report from The Hollywood Reporter, which claims that sources told them that Johnny paid Lori $1.25 million to keep quiet after he allegedly left a long ranting message in which he repeatedly used the N-word. Now, I can't confirm if that is true. The Hollywood Reporter is generally a credible source, so I'm gonna say that I do think it's pretty likely true, and there are text messages that can be found online where Johnny is using an N-word. I'm not gonna say it's the N-word. I don't know if it technically counts as, like, a slur, but it's, like, the other N-word, if that makes sense. Like... The word they use in the movie Hairspray. 
I'd really prefer not to say it. But the point isn't that Johnny is racist. Him and Amber have actually both used the N-word in documented text messages. So neither of them gets a pass for it. Um, they're both probably racist. But that has nothing to do with abuse. The only reason I bring it up in Johnny Depp's case is that if him and his wife are on such good terms, I don't know why he would need to pay her anything to keep her quiet about something bad that he's done. If they're friends, you'd think she'd care to protect his reputation. But I don't know. So in 1985, Johnny got divorced from Lori. He then started dating Sherilyn Fenn in 1986. And the same year, Amber Heard was born. So like Johnny, Amber also claims to have suffered parental abuse in childhood, this time from her father. She similarly compared Johnny to her abusive parent much like he did to her, writing in a 2013 text message that Johnny acted worse than her father when he was under the influence. Details of Amber's abuse are harder to find. Johnny's been a public figure for longer than Amber, and he's more famous, so information about his early life was just easier to find. And the Amber Heard hatred made my research harder, because the hateful rhetoric about her is so dominant in any search of her name, it's really difficult to find reliable data that's free from obvious bias. Like, one mistruth that's ubiquitous online is the claim that Amber's parents sided with Johnny during the trial instead of their daughter, and that's evidently not true. They support their daughter much like Johnny's family has supported him. And Amber's fans have similarly tried spreading rumors that one of Johnny's daughters sides with Amber, which is again evidently false. I hate the internet. What we do know is that Amber's alleged her father was a violent alcoholic, and she was raised Catholic but later separated herself from the church. More on that later. So like we said, Johnny started dating Sherilyn Fenn in 1986, they continued dating until 1989 and allegedly were engaged. I couldn't find definite confirmation of that, but considering the pattern that Johnny has, I don't doubt it. He, like, really loves getting engaged. And Sherilyn has gone on to defend Johnny against Amber Heard, saying that he's not capable of the things being written about him. Then on May 9th, 1989, we have our first arrest for Johnny. At 25, Johnny was arrested for a noise complaint at a hotel, after which he apparently assaulted a security guard and there was some damage done to the hotel lobby. Later in 1989, fresh off his relationship with Sherilyn, Johnny started dating Jennifer Grey and proposed to her after two weeks. The engagement lasted nine months, and Jennifer said that she ended the relationship with a note left in Johnny's hotel room. She would go on to write about the relationship in her book, saying, quote, Johnny was commuting every week back and forth from Vancouver, but had begun more and more regularly getting into trouble. Fights in bars, skirmishes with cops. He'd started missing his flights home to LA, having overslept, or when he did come home, he'd be crazy jealous and paranoid about what I'd been up to while he was gone. I attributed his unhappiness and ill temper to him feeling miserable and powerless to get off 21 Jump Street." Unquote. After breaking up with Jennifer, Johnny found his third love of the year when he met the 17-year-old Winona Ryder. Johnny was 25 at the time, he had been married once, engaged twice, and Winona was 17, and Johnny was both her first boyfriend and her first kiss. Clearly, Johnny had quite a lot more life experience than Winona had. She's spoken very positively about the relationship, but it is definitely a little sus when a 25-year-old is dating a teenager, especially one that's never kissed another person before. There's just some red flags there. But five months after their first date, Johnny proposed in 1990. We're on our third engagement within two years. Then in 1991, he got the words Winona Forever tattooed on him. In 93, after they broke up, he had that tattoo changed to Wino Forever. In relation to the abuse accusations, Winona, like most of Johnny's exes, has defended him, saying, quote, 
He was never, never violent towards me. He was never, never abusive at all towards me. He has never been violent or abusive towards anybody I have seen. I truly and honestly only know him as a really good man, an incredibly loving, extremely caring guy who was so very protective of me and the people that he loves, and I felt so very, very safe with him, unquote. In 2010, though, during an interview for Black Swan, Winona said, quote, The scene where I trashed my dressing room was my last scene. I remember my first boyfriend used to smash everything. At 18, everything is dramatic, unquote. Since we know that Johnny was Winona's first boyfriend, we can assume that her comment about her boyfriend smashing everything was about him. That definitely still doesn't mean that Johnny was abusive toward any person, but it does indicate that he did have some sort of violent streak in terms of property. Then also in 1993, Johnny opened up the Viper Room, which was a nightclub with live music in West Hollywood, California. It was very popular, especially with celebrities, but it was also flanked with controversy, especially related to drug use. In the year that it opened, River Phoenix, the brother of Joaquin Phoenix, died of an overdose in the club. Johnny said it had nothing to do with his club and that he didn't allow drug use, but keep a pin in that. In 1994, Johnny would start dating the model Kate Moss. Again, there is an age gap here. He was 31 and she was 20. While 20 is a legal age, I am still a little skeeved out by the fact that he was 31, dating someone who could not legally drink. 20 is still a very fresh adult age. On September 14th, 1994, Johnny was arrested again when he was accused of smashing furniture and glass in a hotel room at the Mark Hotel on East 77th Street. An officer at the scene described glass all over the place and furniture upside down and broken table legs while Johnny and Kate were just sitting in the hotel room calmly smoking cigarettes. Charges of federal criminal mischief would be dropped after he paid $9,767 in damages. At the station house, though, Johnny allegedly said to another officer referring to the one who described the scene, quote, I don't think she likes me, but if she saw me at the mall, I bet she would ask for an autograph." Unquote. This indicates some celebrity arrogance that could possibly contribute to an entitlement that maybe leads to someone having some abusive behaviors? I don't know, I'm just putting it out there. It's a dick thing to say no matter what. But perhaps an even worse thing to say was what Johnny told the Movie Line magazine in October of 1994, saying in an interview, quote, Let's say there's a young guy who's successful, famous, rich, da-da-da, can have anything he wants anywhere in the world, we presume. At the same time, this fellow could meet a girl in a bar and say, God, you're great, let's go make out, and then they just go slobber. In his brain, he's thinking, maybe he would like to see her again. Maybe this girl that he met has a slightly ambitious side to her, a devious kind of thing where she starts twisting things around. The next thing you know, this girl says, this motherfucker raped me, and all he knows is that we felt each other's tongues, all right? Let's say the tabloids get a hold of it and say, well, he fucking did it, and that spins around for a few days or weeks, and bing, this guy's guilty in the eyes of the world before he even has a chance to speak, unquote. Yeah, I mean, that's just kind of some MRA bullshit, but whatever. Him having a regressive point of view about the prevalence of false accusations doesn't mean that he has ever done anything like that. It's just kind of icky. In 1995, Johnny and Kate went on a vacation in Jamaica, and this is where Amber Heard says that she believed that Johnny had pushed Kate down the stairs. Amber said that she heard a rumor about this. I'm still unsure of where she heard it. It's possible that she is the origin of the rumor, but no matter, Kate has denied it. She said that she simply fell downstairs and that Johnny actually helped her get up, so... We're going to go ahead and assume that this allegation was untrue, Johnny never pushed Kate down the stairs, and Kate has gone on to defend Johnny and celebrated his win with him, so it seems like they are still very close friends. Also in 1995, Johnny Depp threw Kate her 21st birthday party at the Viper Room. 
And on that night, Jason Donovan suffered a cocaine-induced seizure. Luckily, he survived the ordeal, but he did say that finding drugs at the Vibe Room was, quote, as easy as ringing for room service, unquote. So Johnny's claim that the Viper Room isn't just like a hub for drugs, probably untrue. Then in 1998, Kate and Johnny would break up, and as we already said, Kate has continued to support Johnny in the trial, and they remain friends. In that year, 1998, Johnny hooked up with Ellen Barkin and began a relationship with her that was primarily sexual and lasted between three to six months. To this point, Ellen is the only one of Johnny's exes that's testified on Amber's behalf. Though Jennifer Grey hasn't spoken explicitly of Johnny being capable of the types of abuse being alleged, her claims regarding his jealousy reflect similar accounts as Ellen's. Ellen said, quote, He's just a jealous man, controlling. Where are you going? Who are you going with? What did you do last night? I had a scratch on my back once that got him very, very angry because he insisted it came from me having sex with a person who wasn't him, unquote. She further claimed witnessing a fight in which Johnny picked up a wine bottle and launched it across the room. She said she couldn't remember the details, but she believed the altercation was between Johnny and his friends in the room and his assistant. She testified that the bottle was thrown in the direction of her and the group of people in the room, but nobody was hit or suffered any injuries. She said, quote, There was always an air of violence around him. He was a yeller. He is verbally abusive, unquote. After splitting with Ellen, Johnny would go on to begin dating Vanessa Paradis in 1998 when the two met on the set of The Ninth Gate. Now, The Ninth Gate was a movie directed by Roman Polanski, a man who fled the United States in 1978 because he was found guilty of drugging and raping a 13-year-old girl. Not only did Johnny agree to star in a movie directed by Roman Polanski, he actively defended him and implied that the girl made up the accusation for, I don't know, attention or money or something. Who, who fucking knows? But at this point... Johnny is seeming like a full rape apologist. Again, doesn't mean he's raped anybody. He's just eager to side with people that have. Then on January 31st, 1999, Johnny Depp was arrested again after a fight involving photographers outside a restaurant in London. The photographers reportedly approached him to take his picture, and then he threatened them with a wooden plank. Police cautioned him against threatening behavior and then released him after four hours in custody. This same year, Johnny would welcome his first child, Lily Rose Depp, into the world. I'm only bringing her up because Marilyn Manson is Lily's godfather. Manson and Johnny Depp first became friends around the time of 21 Jump Street. It appears they're still friends to this day. I actually used to be like a huge stan of Manson when I was a teenager. And I remember Johnny being credited on the Born Villain album because he played guitar on one of the songs. I haven't listened to that album in a while because Marilyn Manson is a rapist and abuser and alleged sex trafficker. Unlike Johnny, Manson has many, many allegations against him. So I'm not even going to humor the idea that he is innocent. Like I said, I was a big fan of Manson for years, and looking back, I can see a lot of red flags that indicate he was definitely an abuser. So yet again, Johnny Depp, enabler to rapists. Also in 1999, a multi-million dollar lawsuit was filed against Johnny and four other individuals for committing fraud, allegedly, by Anthony Fox, one of the co-owners of the Viper Room. Then, on December 19th, 2001, Fox went missing shortly before he was scheduled to testify against Johnny and the other four individuals. Also missing was his pickup truck and a 38 caliber revolver. 19 days later, on January 6, 2002, Fox's vehicle was found abandoned in Santa Clarita, California, 330 miles from where he was last seen near his home in Ventura, his body has never been found. Do I think Johnny Depp had something to do with this? No. 
It is, of course, possible. It's still a mystery that has never been solved, but Anthony Fox also apparently had a lot of people gunning for him, so could have been anyone. I don't see any reason to believe that Johnny specifically had anything to do with his disappearance. Next, in 2003, we finally get a year with developments for both Amber and Johnny. So first with Amber, she dropped out of high school at 17 and moved to LA to pursue acting. That's pretty similar to Johnny, who dropped out at 16 to pursue a career in music and then moved to LA when he was 20. Amber specifically was trying to distance herself from her Catholic private school after the death of a close friend at 16 caused her to lose faith in her religion. On Johnny's side in 2003, according to Radar Online, a judge indicated that Anthony Fox would prevail in the case, writing that Johnny breached his fiduciary duties and the facts established persistent and pervasive fraud and mismanagement and abuse of authority at the Viper Room. In 2004, then, Johnny would quietly settle the lawsuit and turn over his share of the Viper Room to Anthony Fox's daughter, Amanda. The same year, Amber Heard would make her acting debut as Maria in Friday Night Lights. I would never watch a show about football, so I have no idea if that was a big role or not, but that's her debut. Amber would go on to become a part of other projects that I'm more familiar with. Um, Zombieland, Pineapple Express, The Danish Girl, Aquaman, Justice League. So not quite as successful as her now ex, but you know, not too shabby. In 2008, Amber entered a domestic partnership with Tasha Van Ray, a photographer. Then in 2009, we have our first bit of controversy for Amber. She was arrested after an alleged incident of abuse from Amber toward Tasha. The story didn't become public until 2016, after Amber filed for a restraining order against Johnny. But speaking with Johnny Depp's attorney in a later trial, Officer Beverly Leonard, who was there at the scene, said, quote, I was in the baggage claim area and I observed her with a traveling companion. They got into an altercation where Miss Heard had grabbed her traveling companion and pulled something from her neck. At that point, I got up and went over to break up what appeared to be a fight. I summoned a colleague to help me and I stepped in between them and separated them, stopping any further injuries or escalation. Miss Heard was aggressive toward her traveling companion. She had reached up and grabbed her arm and pulled a necklace off of her. And then I observed her having it in her hand. She seemed to not be very steady on her feet. Her eyes were blurry and watery and I could smell alcohol, unquote. Amber was arrested that day, but charges were soon dropped. And Amber went on to say, quote, In fact, it was so ridiculous, those charges. It was a verbal argument. It was misinterpreted and misrepresented. There was no physical violence, no physical abuse, and zero domestic violence whatsoever between us, unquote. Tasha would also defend Amber, saying, quote, I recall hints of misogynistic attitudes toward us, which later appeared to be homophobic when they found out we were domestic partners and not just friends. It's disheartening that Amber's integrity and story are being questioned yet again. Amber is a brilliant, honest, and beautiful woman, and I have had the utmost respect for her. We shared five wonderful years together and remain close to this day, unquote. Now, Amber's critics will dispute Tasha's statement by pointing out that one of the arresting officers, Beverly Leonard, who spoke with Johnny's attorneys, is a lesbian herself. So they're trying to challenge the idea that the couple was a victim of misogyny or homophobia in their arrest, then implying that the arrest was legitimate and Amber did in fact injure Tasha in the altercation. A few things about that argument. One, there were two officers at the scene and Amber has clarified that it was the male officer that they felt discriminated against them. Two, Women can display internalized misogyny, and lesbians can display internalized homophobia, so it doesn't disprove Tasha's claim. And three, Amber and Tasha could have been wrong about the officer's motives, but that doesn't mean that Amber was guilty of abuse. It's a logical fallacy to think that disproving one small element of a story automatically disproves the entire account. Whether or not the arresting officers were homophobic is kind of irrelevant. That was just a perspective that Tasha had on the situation. But if Tasha says there was no abuse, I'm gonna believe her the same way I believe Kate Moss when she said that Johnny Depp was never abusive to her. 
At this point in the timeline, the only partner of either actor to go on to accuse one of them of abuse is Ellen Barkin, who said Johnny was verbally abusive to her in 1998. Jennifer Grey accused Johnny of being jealous and described their relationship as toxic, but she never used the word abuse or really spoke about his behavior in any depth. So as far as I'm concerned, both parties have a mostly clean slate going into their relationship with each other. In 2009, Johnny Depp and Amber Heard would begin production on The Rum Diaries, and while they were both still in partnerships with other women, they would go on to officially become a couple around 2011. We'll continue with the timeline next week when things are going to get a lot harder to sort through. But my final thoughts for today are, both stars have a pretty messy past. They both come from hard backgrounds, alleging to have faced abuse as children and exposed to violence at a young age. Johnny Depp clearly has a substance abuse problem that Amber would later go on to blame for his violent behavior. And so far, that's not an unsurprising development in the story. Accounts of Johnny's violence have already emerged from various sources, though they are mostly violent against property instead of people, with a few exceptions. There was the security guard in 1989, and then the photographers in 1999. But at least in those situations, those weren't, like, friends of his. It wasn't someone that he owed any sort of loyalty to, so I wouldn't consider them abusive, just violent, period. But there is certainly a pattern that we're seeing emerge with Johnny's rage and his alcohol and drug problems. On Amber's side, even if we assume she was never physically abusive toward another ex, the fact that she was acting aggressively enough to draw attention of police when she was interacting with Tasha publicly indicates that she may exhibit some toxic behaviors herself. So again, both of them seem kind of fucked up. And I mentioned it already, but the age gap between Johnny Depp and many of his girlfriends is a little concerning. Amber Heard, for instance, was 23 when they met, while Johnny Depp was 46. One of his relationships after divorcing Amber actually had an even more troubling age gap, but we'll get to that later. So clearly, there is kind of a power imbalance in a lot of these relationships, not only with age, but also the power and influence of Johnny Depp as an actor who is more famous than all of his former partners. It's also a little concerning how quickly he enters serious relationships. There is a potential pattern here of love bombing, which is when, at the beginning of a relationship, one of the partners will kind of shower the other person with a lot of attention and compliments, validation, maybe even gifts, and they will quickly escalate the relationship into becoming really serious really fast. Afterward, they will begin exhibiting more abusive behaviors. Often they're not doing this on purpose, it's not like a conscious tactic that people take but it can still indicate a lot of issues in regards to other people's boundaries, which can escalate into more obvious abuse. Now, just because I noticed that pattern doesn't really mean anything. Again, most of Johnny Depp's exes have spoken highly of him, so we're just gonna leave it at that for today. And then next week... Uh, <laughs> I'm nervous for next week. Just going through the information I already have, it's really overwhelming and hard to totally organize into a narrative that makes sense, but I'm gonna try, so I guess I'll see you then. Bye!